Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Big Sister Hotline is recorded on the stolen lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. Sovereignty of these lands has never been ceded. I pay my respects to Elders past and present. The Hotline is proud to be an ongoing supporter of JIRA, an Aboriginal-controlled community organisation where culture is shared and celebrated. This land always was and always will be Aboriginal and Black Lives Matter. Big Sister Hotline, how can we help? Hello, dear listeners, guys, gals, and non-binary pals. It's me, Clementine Ford, back with another episode of the Big Sister Hotline, a weekly podcast offering frank, funny, and feminist advice on life, love, and whether or not you should break up with your no-good Nick boyfriend. Spoiler, the answer is always yes. If you follow me on Instagram, you'll know that in addition to being a hardline feminist and tough love big sister from another mister, I adore makeup. I also adore skincare and experimenting with different looks. In fact, some of the questions I receive most as an erstwhile big sister are about my skincare routine. If this sounds like you too, you're going to love Adore Beauty's Beauty IQ Uncensored podcast. Every week, Adore Beauty's Joanna and Hannah get real about the unairbrushed aspects of beauty, from what retinol actually does, to what to do about foot fungus, and how you manage your bum hair. Funny, educational, Beauty IQ Uncensored is everything I love in a podcast, and I know you will too. So if you have a burning desire to find out what's, well, burning in your underpants, check it out. You can find it wherever you get your podcasts. My guest on the hotline this week is an author, artist, screenwriter, and former provosts scholar at the University of Oxford, ooh la la. She is the author of the critically acclaimed memoir, Running Like China, a novel for young adults breathing underwater, and an adult literary novel, Below Deck, which has been published in eight territories and translated into six languages. She is also the co-creator, co-writer, and co-director of Cloudy River, which has screened at and been nominated for awards at numerous international film festivals. She is Sophie Hardcastle. Sophie, welcome to the hotline. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, very excited. But also thinking of you right now, um, thank you for giving me this time. I'm sure it's a very de-stressing time for you at the moment. It is quite full on here in stage four lockdown. Um, I think the last time, yeah, so when we when I recorded the last episode with Salma El-Wadani, we, I anticipated it was going to happen, but it hadn't happened yet. Um, having said that, it's only been almost a week, but it feels like it's been a lifetime. So 
humans adapt very easily. Mm -hmm. That's it. I think this whole year, I can't believe that this is all has happened in one year. It's just wild. It is wild, isn't it? Wild is an excellent word for it. And you, I mean, we're both writers, but you're a fiction writer and you're a fiction writer who deals with, uh, you know, issues of important human um, impact, but also in environments that feel hostile to the reader and hostile to the characters. Uh, so I feel like this is kind of your wheelhouse. It's, it's, a, it's a book being written and you could have written this book. Mm. Yeah, it is, isn't it? It's just defies the imagination. Um, I, I've been thinking a lot about that, that this, if, you know, if we'd put this into fiction at the beginning of the year, like it just would have seemed so implausible um, and so unbelievable. And yet here we are living this. What a, what a time to be here. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, people have said it numerous times, but 2020 really has jumped the shark in terms of narrative progress. I think it was a few months ago back when um, it was either the killer bees or the killer hornets or the monkeys escaping the science lab uh, with vials of something or other that at some point you just kind of have to laugh, otherwise you really will cry. This year has sort of changed my life irrevocably. Um irreversibly I think that is the right word I don't yeah my my words are failing me all the time this year um so I yeah I did I came back here for a book tour and I've been thinking a lot about goodbyes and closure because I I really left my life in the UK with the expectation that I would be back in two months um and so any goodbyes or or anything like that it was you know, it was meant to be temporary and, um, yeah, now, now I have kind of settled into my life here and it, yeah, feels like I'm probably not actually going to move back to the UK. So, yeah, it's, it's quite strange that all of these little moments, um, I've sort of have been grieving, um, losing my life there that, yeah, I don't know. It's, it's, it's just such a strange thing to come to terms with in that, all of these moments that would have been the end of of certain things um, and certain relationships, I didn't realise that they were the end at the time and then now I'm kind of having this, um, like that grief is then catching up with me and I'm sort of mourning the loss of, of all of these relationships and times that I, that I had there. One of the things that I find particularly difficult to navigate with grief, uh, whether or not that's been the grief at you know, losing someone uh, to illness or grief of just moving on from someone who remains alive um, is the the lack of control that I have over being able to understand what it mm -hmm. is that's happening. So I remember when my mother died, being pricked by anxiety here and there, and I tried very hard to sort of stave it off because I knew once I let it in, then it would overwhelm me. Or I felt like once I let it in, it would overwhelm me. But I remember the day of her funeral lying on her bed and crying and then suddenly being overwhelmed by this very childlike naivety of not knowing where she'd gone. I don't mean anything kind of, uh, you know, existential or, um, you know, supernatural or anything like that. I mean, literally what happens to a life, what happens to a body when it's 
it just ceases to be. And in lots of ways, that is the grief that people all over the world are navigating now, not just in terms of of literally having to say goodbye to some of the people that they love, but also and doing it in very trying circumstances, but also mm. saying goodbye to a life that they knew and that they understood and that potentially will never return. And how how do we how do we reckon with that? How do we work to understand what that means broadly as a global community, but also for ourselves? Are these some of the questions that you've been wrestling with as well? Yeah, absolutely. And it's been a very strange thing to mourn, you know, very intimate personal losses um, when it's still taking into account uh, a global grief that is going on. You know, that I remember very early on in lockdown having a phone call or sort of a group chat phone call with three of my friends in the UK. And it sort of struck me, even though I had logically understood that this is affecting everybody and that. Um, you know, these friends across seas and mountains and deserts all the way on the other side of the world, they were doing exactly the same day to day uh, as me in Australia. And it really took, even though, even though I kind of understood that, yes, this is affecting everybody, that moment was kind of when, you know, when a a truth sort of materializes in your body and it actually starts to feel real and you're, you're like, yes, okay, my body is understanding this. And the fact that just that idea crystallizing in my mind that everyone is griefing this right now and everybody is living this. And yeah, that that was just kind of astonishing that um, I guess on one hand, we feel this closeness and this coming together, but then on the other hand, you know, we're all in isolation and we're it, it, that's a really interesting tension, I think, the way that those two things are rubbing up against each other. Mm. I'm curious to know if you, like me, have experienced any of that tension manifesting itself in physical sensation in your body. For me personally, I noticed this at the start of the first lockdown, uh, in, and I live in Melbourne, as people know. I noticed this at the start of the first lockdown here, and and interestingly, it was raised in one of my mother's groups that other people were experiencing the same physical sensation of the, you know, the scars or the trauma of childbirth and newborn rearing were kind of manifesting in our bodies. And that evened out a little bit as my anxiety and stress disappeared. But then since returning into stage four, or, or not returning to, but going into stage four, uh, despite the fact that not really that much has changed in my day-to-day life from what I had, you know, from the routine that I'd gotten used to being in with my son and, you know, the, the kind of closeness that we were sticking to to home anyway, I suppose it's the escalation and the anxiety of a community not sure what is coming next or not sure whether or not the efforts that we are putting in will will pay off. And I've been feeling that physical trauma return um, mm like in my pelvis, uh, you know, a a very childbirth-related sensation of pain um, or a heaviness. Some people, some women I know have described a heaviness in their breasts that reminded them of, you know, their milk coming in years before. And I'm, I'm curious to know whether or not you've had a similar sensation of your body responding to the environment around you because you're someone who is very tapped into sensation and very tapped into the metaphysical so yeah I'm curious about uh your response to that Mm. 
I think for the first, uh, certainly while we were in lockdown, um, I was reading and writing a lot um, every day and I felt very kind of at home and quite safe within my body. Um, I was experiencing, yeah, I guess it's this kind of overwhelming sadness, but was one of my friends gave me this really great advice where she was like, you know, let, let yourself feel this, let yourself cry and let it wash through you because what we don't let wash through us and what we hold on to, then, you know, our, our bodies remember that and our bodies harbour those stories and, and hold on to that trauma. And so, yeah, I felt like I was very much letting grief wash wash through me and was and was feeling quite strong in myself and then um as you know in yeah very recently I did experience a significant trauma to my body and it's been this very strange thing to grapple with because I have in my life experienced sexual violence before and there was a kind of familiarity with this of I have been here before and I know my way out and yet I felt completely betrayed by society and the world in that in the midst of a pandemic this awful thing has still unfolded and I felt incredibly destroyed and yeah my it was it was just such a strange thing to grapple with um and and to feel so betrayed by the world while the world is grieving this other huge thing and I think yeah it's just been it's uh, it's just it's been such a time um but again I think I have let this wash through me and I think um you, you shared a poem that I had written on Instagram about how I felt like the borders of my body had had become porous and that I was spilling out and that all of the people around me, they, they really rallied and they held on to me and they like sort of caught all these pieces of me that was slipping out and held on to them until I was feeling good again. And, and, you know, they could give them back to me and put, put, I could put them back inside me while my borders hardened and solidified. And I, I, yeah, I'm not sure how, I, f- I feel like I'm just ranting, but um, no, not at all. Yeah, but but I do. It, I, it has been such a strange thing to sort of come to terms with this in the context of a global pandemic. Mm. And it's interesting as well. Well, interesting is the wrong word. Interesting is the word we use when we uh, when we're worried that if we let our rage fully embody us, that we won't be able to speak at all. It's mm. interesting that. Amidst a pandemic, as you say, this great harm is still willfully being done to women and children all over the world. And yet because of the impact of the pandemic, once again, women and children will be expected to absorb that trauma for the good Mm -hmm. of the bigger picture. And it's always some reason why people have to absorb the trauma or not speak about it just now or pick a better time or whatever it might be. And I know it with, um, you know, with no small amount of sadness and distress about it that Daisy Coleman, uh, unfortunately the world lost Daisy Coleman yesterday 
or yesterday at the recording of this podcast, um, Daisy, who had so bravely spoken out about the sexual violence that had been inflicted on her by a, a schoolmate when she was 14 and who had used that, I suppose, experience to really significantly change the world that she lived in by starting an organisation that helped to educate teens about consent and to educate about sexual violence. But, you know, the trauma lives in the body and the body Mm -hmm. keeps the score. And Daisy, uh, you know, Daisy ended her life and it's a fucking huge fucking loss. And it infuriates me that this is considered to be, you know, women and children are always the collateral damage of the world just moving on. Yeah. Yeah. I know I was like I've been thinking a lot about how sexual violence sort of demands or imposes on us this pause where your life stops because somebody has broken in and set the house on fire and in that rebuild you waste so much time. Um, maybe waste is not the right word, but that you you are forced to spend so much time processing this trauma and surviving this trauma and therefore you know I I was so angry because I was just thinking I could be spending this time writing poems about beautiful things and painting pictures and I could spend this time doing so many incredible things and yet all my time and energy is now just focused on surviving and one of my friends she said that you know there's a reason why sexual violence is is considered a war crime fails to see your humanity and therefore yeah is is a weapon that is used against women and children not exclusively but predominantly and that yeah it just uh, imagine where we would be if if we weren't spending our time surviving these these traumas but actually flourishing and building and um i mean i know that i will end up making some incredible work out of this but imagine yeah imagine a world in which we didn't have to take a pause and that we weren't forced to stop in our in our progress and a world where the incredible work that women were able to make was not so often related to the invasion of their bodies Mm -hmm. let's talk now about your book I'm holding here, uh, the book that you did come back to Australia to go on a, a planned two-month book tour, but now are, are back for good, uh, Below Deck, um, which is an incredible book, but also does deal with this this topic, um, you know, art, art being written out of trauma, as you so beautifully kind of um, impl- it, it just spoke about before. How does how do you feel now that that is on the page? It's a fictional narrative, but it's it deals with the topic of sexual violence and it deals with the idea of isolation and rebuilding. How do you feel now that it's on the page? Has that given you some sense of control and release, or, or do you feel like so many authors a lack of control because it's out in the world now and it doesn't belong to you anymore? I I. F- I felt like I reclaimed my story and my body by writing this book. Um, 
Below Deck charts the life of 21-year-old Olivia from the age of 21 to 29. She is working on yachts uh, around the world and Below Deck takes us across four oceans and three continents um, all the way to the end of the world in Antarctica. And so Ollie learns that at sea, no one can hear you scream. So much of this book is about the rebuild, as we were saying, and how you come to feel at home once more within the fleshy walls of your body and how you sort of then navigate navigate the world um, in a way that you are in control of your body. And I think writing it, I, I wrote it inspired by, I don't know if inspired is the best word to use there, but inspired by an experience of sexual violence that I had in my early 20s. And I felt like I, because I had total authorship over the story and because it was fiction, I could sail across the horizon, if you like, into this land of fiction where the repressed have managed to survive. And I could rewrite the ending and make it as powerful as I wanted. And I could give Ollie some closure or I could, uh, yeah, I could, I could choose where she ended up. And that for me was so, I mean, it just, it, it made me and kind of made my story. Yeah. It was, it had a, it was a very, very interesting process and I, and I really enjoyed it. And then I guess ha experiencing something very um, horrific again, I was just kind of like, but I've been here and I wrote a whole book about this and, and, it, you know, again, and it's just that, like, infuriating um, point of, like, as I said, like, just making you take a pause on your life again. Um, yeah, so we'll see. We'll see what comes of this. I'm sure more, more art and words. I love how you phrase that, you know, the land of fiction where the repressed have found a way to survive or the repressed have managed to survive. That's so beautiful. Um, and it's, it's true as well that, you know, I keep thinking about uh, an article that I read years ago and it comes up whenever I, you know, whenever I remember, whenever I've, I'm, I sit and think about the incredible theft of women's lives that is perpetrated alongside the act of sexual violence, uh, which I think not enough people who, for whom those things are theoretical, not enough people understand that it's, you know, you, there's the physical, but then there's the theft of, of, as you say, the time and the energy and the enforced solitude that one must enter into in order to recover and to rebuild themselves. And I remember reading an article written anonymously about a, a swimmer, a girl who was on her swim team and she was sort of on track to the Olympics. She was that good. And she was experiencing sexual harassment at first and then sexual assault from one of the boys in the team. And she reported it to the coach and she reported it to people in her community. But the answer was always the same, that, you know, for the good of the team, she needed to just ignore it. And she ended up, it ended up naturally becoming too, and part of the, the violence that she was experiencing was also the humiliation of knowing that, people knew it was going on and treated it like a joke. Um, mm. And she ended up quitting the team and gave away her swim career and 
and the article was written in the context of how sexual violence and the impact of consequences are always framed in terms of what the perpetrator, which is more often than not going to be a, a young man or a, a grown man, what they will lose, their future mm. potential, you know, that they had a great career ahead of them and, you know, one tiny little mistake as they always frame it shouldn't have to remove that from him. But no one ever talks about the immense loss of potential on, on a track that those people, that those survivors were on because I think it's it's a mistake to say that the potential has been lost entirely because the potential is just channeled into something different. But the mm-hmm. potential from their original path is suddenly dispersed and it's gone. And she finished by saying, I want to know what the world would be like if we made women a really big fucking deal. Mm. And I think that so often, what would the world be like if we showed girls and women that we believed they were a really big fucking deal and we protected them as if they were a big deal and we protected their futures and their potential as if what they could deliver to us as a society were big fucking deals. Yeah, we are. We are big fucking deals and we will continue to be in the face of this, in the face of all of this. There's a... a, a a scene in sort of the first third of your book. Um, I don't want to give too much away of the story, uh, but Olivia is speaking to her soon-to-be ex-boyfriend, Adam, or she's in sort of in a, in a process of potentially breaking up with him and they're having a fight and he says to her, you embarrassed me in front of my friends. And she writes, and I want to say, Adam, you humiliated me, but I can't bring myself to speak. I open my mouth, but nothing comes out. Being humiliated does that to people. It silences them. And then she goes on to say to him, you know, whatever grievance he has, that she wasn't in the mood. And he says, what? So I can't have fun because you're in a mood. And she writes, I hate how he says it, mood, like it's something non-human. And it just made me think again of, of the the way in which the rage and the emotions and the emotional landscape of women is so often pathologized as this otherworldly non-human thing that any expression of feeling that we have that deviates from what it is that is expected of us to keep the peace and to make men's lives constantly easier and to be the furnishing of men's lives and the springboards onto which they can jump and soar into the sky, that any deviation from that is like all things used to punish us. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, even, even this, this notion that um, I, uh, so when I was at Oxford and I was studying English literature and I came across this one essay in which uh, a writer, Dorothy Richardson spoke about what it would be like to walk away from an accident and actually take into account your emotional and sort of quote unquote logical response that she said that the psyche or the human psyche and the way that we are meant to perceive things is in this like as a kind of atmosphere and that so often in when women tell their stories the any inconsistencies in our stories or or any sort of moment where your emotional or your gut or your um sort of intuition betrays or goes against what your rational mind is trying to say 
that those inconsistencies render our stories unbelievable and they mean that we're not heard and that we are silenced and she says that the consciousness and our consciousness and our and our way of being should be this kind of atmosphere made of many moving parts all going in different directions but that they form one collective whole and i think you know all of these efforts to to undermine us because we are um, emotional in a way that also everyone is emotional um, and it's just this myth that, that we can possibly exist like purely as rational beings because we are, you know our hearts are in everything and and, and so I think what's that our hearts should be in everything yeah, the idea that and rationality is somehow the best way to human is absurd it is. It's so absurd, and I mean, and this myth that we uh, that we can, or, or in particular that cis men are, you know, this myth that they are rational. Um, this is one thing that annoys me so much: is this idea that you know humans, and in particular cis men, have des- described uh, the fact that they are who they are because they adhere to reason and they are rational beings and they're logical and they're this and they're that and yet when a person commits a crime like sexual violence they are an animal and they're a beast and they're a monster and they're acting on impulse and it's like no you don't get to have that both ways if you are claiming that you are you because of reason and that you have the ability to judge right from wrong in this moment like using language as in calling someone an animal or saying that they you know they're yielding to their natural impulses just exonerates the perpetrator entirely and i hate that and so i think so much of the language that we need to be using is you know holding people accountable holding perpetrators accountable and not using language that you know perpetuates this myth of a lone wolf stalking someone in an alleyway that exonerates, mm. you know, the boss with their secretary or, um, you know, a husband in bed with his wife. It's just another thing that's taken away from us. It is, and that's just a, a, another weapon that's used against us to silence us. Mm. Some women who are not silenced or who are looking to not be silenced are those who have submitted us questions today. So, Sophie, shall we get on with the questions? Yes, please. Please note my disclaimer, as always, that neither Sophie Hardcastle nor I are professionally trained doctors, counsellors or sex therapists. We're just two women who've got a little thing called life experience and who exercise our demons on the page. Newish to dating asks, I've been a single lady and I've been on dating apps for about a year now, mainly Bumble with a brief hinge experiment. There's two main things I've been struggling with. And I guess the main theme is a general feeling of being disheartened and also struggling with authenticity. Firstly, I'm bi, but I've never been with a woman before. However, I have been on a few lady dates. I've been in two long-term relationships with cis men, one after another. So this has been the longest stretch of time where I've been single and had the opportunity to explore. 
I'm confident in my sexuality and I know I'm attracted to all genders, but I think as a 30-year-old woman, I'm a little afraid of not having any quote-unquote experience with anyone other than cis men. I feel like I won't be taken seriously or that some people won't want to be with me because they think it's quote-unquote just a phase. My second issue is that I find myself self-policing and self-doubting on dating profiles as well as during dates, particularly when it comes to cis men. I've had a few disappointing experiences where I'm just reminded constantly how trash men can be, gaslighting, being objectified, unsolicited sexual attention, or in some cases, non-consensual sexual behavior. But for some reason, I keep trying to make myself more appealing to these fuckboys, i.e. silencing myself, not standing up for what I believe in, etc. I think I'm a pretty rad person who has a lot to offer, and I want to find a person who would be a great fit, but I can't help but feel that I'm doing something to attract the wrong people. Please help. Sophie. Okay. So I think, I mean, as a proud pansexual woman, I responded very, (laughs) responded um, initially to the first part of that question, thinking about, you know, when I first came to realize uh, my sexuality and just how much sort of internalized not only homophobia but biphobia I had and this idea that you know as um at this little sister 30 year old woman um you know there's these doubts and these fears that she has that that she won't be taken seriously and I mean in the um best way that I can possibly say I think to help with that um we are all on our own journeys and that is not a reflection on her that fear I think that fear is so valid um you know that that is a learnt fear that society has told us that it's, it's like especially for bisexual and pansexual people that you know that that this is a phase or um that this is not valid because you know you're you you don't really know where you are but it sounds like she is confident in her sexuality and I think unapologetically own that and, you know, be, be excited for these um, new experiences you're going to have. I think also um, one thing that has helped me with, um, you know, when I, when I did first start being with people of the same gender as me, that um, in many ways knowing my body and knowing what I like allowed me to go into physical and intimate relationships with people you know sort of I guess I guess this I mean this applies to going into an intimate relationship with anyone of any gender that you know if you know what you like you can prioritize that and you can make sure that you know if oh how good is open communication how sexy and hot is that that you can say, oh, I really like this or, yeah, I'm not so into that, that um, I think if you can go into um, relationships with women, if you're sleeping with women for the first time or, you know, even just kissing women for the first time, knowing what you like for yourself is so important and will be able to, um, you'll be able to go into that into that moment brave and confident and um 
sort of unapologetically honest about what you like and what you want? Yeah. There's a couple of things that jump out to me in reading this. And the first is I think that, you know, obviously there are exceptions and the queer community, like all communities, has its own fuckwits in it, you know, who want to police people's behaviour and have a list of rules, uh, you know, over who who gets to be a part of the community. But I actually think that that's a very small proportion of people. And it's, like I said, it's only there because every community has people like that. But generally speaking, the queer community is going to be a lot more welcoming uh, and cognizant of the cognizant of the intricacies of sexuality and the respect that sexual preferences deserve, that I think that whilst it's completely understandable and and uh, expected to have those fears about acceptance when you're looking to, I guess, explore for the first time, that actually what where that comes from is the deep conditioning that we've all had as people living in a cis heteropatriarchy, you know, that the response there is an expectation of judgment because that's that's what heterosexuality does to us. It judges mm-hmm. our sexual experience. Heterosexuality that frames legitimate sex as only being penis in vagina sex, that anything that is non-penetrative doesn't count as sex. You know, the way that we always say things like or, or that it's sort of a, a social kind of construct to say, oh, we did everything but, you know, mm-hmm. so that's what you're, you're – you're a virgin, and I'd like to state for the record that I don't believe in virginity, but you're a virgin until the moment that a dick gets put inside you if you're a, you know, a cis woman. Um, that this is the only sexuality that is framed as being real. So you can have had, you know, immense sexual experience in queer scenarios and yet if you've never been, if you're a cis woman who's never been penetrated by a cis man, what, you're like a virgin? Or alternatively, you can have had this prescribed heterosex once in your life and suddenly you've you've achieved some kind of sense of sexual knowledge that has been denied to other people. So I feel like what's really important for this little sister to understand is that as un, as as expected as that response is because it's conditioning that it does actually spawn from uh, existing in a in a predominantly heterosexist world um, mm-hmm. and home world and queerphobic world. And unshackling herself from those feelings is part of the process. But the second thing is that I completely understand as a queer woman who sleeps with men as well, with cis men as well, and is unfortunately attracted to them, um, (laughs) I completely understand how you fall into those roles that have been prescribed to you. And this is someone Mm -hmm. like me who is, you know, people would scream at me in the street that I'm a man hater if they had the fucking courage to do it. Um, But I do it too because the conditioning is so deep. I understand the role that I'm meant to play when I'm in in a romantic scenario with a cis man. I get it. And in some ways, as infuriating as it can be, in some ways it's it's easier than having to think about what my role should be. So the other thing that you need to be aware of is, of course, it's intimidating to enter a situation in which you don't know what the fucking rule book is. You don't know what the playbook is because you live in a world that tells you there is a playbook 
and that mm. there is a certain way you have to behave and have to be. So sometimes even I feel intimidated by, and I've had a lot of relationships with women, um, and sometimes I feel intimidated at the thought of, of having to literally just be myself because it's scary to just be yourself and to not know what, to not have a, 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 a uniform that you can put on. And the uniform heterosexuality, not that having sex with men makes you heterosexual, but the uniform of prescribed heterosexuality in a cis-centric world is as infuriating as it is, it's very easy because you understand it. So I think that that's kind of the big challenge when you've come out of relationships with cis men is unlearning what it is you've been taught about how to behave around them mm-hmm. and addressing the fact that sometimes fulfilling that role can feel like it's a, it's a bit unburdening because you don't have to, you don't have to really think about how to behave. Yeah. I think what you were saying about the, the rule book, um, really resonated in the sense that, you know, the, all of the media that we consume or most of, almost all of the media that we consume is showing that narrative and showing those narratives and, you know, cis heterosexual people get to see themselves reflected all the time in, in these like, in movies and in literature. And so perhaps this little sister also could seek out some stories in which queer people are the protagonists and in which queer people are the main event as Salma was saying last week I love this idea of the main event and so perhaps she you know as as a as a learning and as a as an unlearning of some of those um, tropes she could seek out stories in which perhaps she will see herself reflected I guess as scary as it is, if you feel like being honest, be honest with your potential partners and say, look, this is new to me because I'm a bisexual woman, but I've been in relationships, two long-term relationships with men. So I'm having to unlearn a lot of what it is that I absorbed in those. And if you, if you're willing to be patient with me, then I would love to explore this with you further. And I think actually you'll find that there are a lot of people that are very sensitive to that and very aware of your needs in that because that's actually one thing the queer community does really well is be aware of people's needs. Yeah, absolutely. Let us know how it goes. Desperately Seeking Susan's asks, I've been thinking a lot lately about friend groups and how to go about finding a group of women slash non-binary folk who share your beliefs and outrages. You speak often about the importance of having that supportive non-cis het male space, and I'm with you 100%, but I feel like I don't have that in my own life. I do have girlfriends, but it's more on an individual basis. They're my friends from different spaces, i.e. a uni friend, a work friend, a school friend, and they aren't friends with each other. Also, as time goes on, I find myself on an increasingly different path to them in different ways. I've been investing time and actively educating myself on feminism. I'm also a passionate vegan as of a few years ago and have strong opinions on human treatments of non-human animals. As time is passing, I'm finding a bigger disconnect with our worldviews and opinions. I do love them, but I sometimes find myself needing a person who sees what I see in the same way. 
I don't want to limit myself and my out loud thoughts, which I'm doing more and more. So I guess I'm asking, how do you find like-minded friends as an adult? Sophie Hardcastle, do you have a lot of like-minded friends? I do. And actually, so I'm really, really happy that we're going to speak about this question because I think it is so important, but also really hard as an adult to cultivate these friendships. Um, My immediate thought when, when I was hearing that these friends were not all, you know, that they were friends from different places and that they weren't necessarily all friends together was just in my ears going dinner party, dinner party, dinner party, bring them together, introduce these friends. The other thing that I was thinking though is, and I'm really glad that this little sister is saying that she's, you know, becoming more vocal and she is feeling stronger in her values. And I do think absolutely that that is not worth compromising on. And that, you know, the the more you get to know you and and what you stand for, I think that just because we have had a friend from high school or a friend from work, you know, if our values don't align, I don't actually, you know, that there's no harm in letting go of those friendships and you can still love them and hold space for them, but they, you know, they don't have to be the center of your of your existence and of your time anymore. And I think it's so fine to outgrow friends and you know to Mm. be like a river splitting off and going in different directions and you know you're still connected at your core um but it's okay that we that we branch out and and go in different directions i do think practically um i'm trying to think so for instance with um with her feminism this little sister's feminism and becoming more excited about feminism and and learning more about it when I was living in Oxford, there were a number of feminist societies that were mostly within the university, but they were open to anybody in Oxford. And I mean, for me, that was an amazing place to be able to go and speak with people, like-minded people. Um, I'm sure that there would be, you know, wherever this little sister is, that there would be online communities that she could um, be a part of, especially with her veganism, you know, activists, communities that she could um, make friends with and and potentially bring those friendships into her you know real physical life um yeah that that would be my advice a similar question to this actually came up in a much earlier episode and uh, I'm going to sort of paraphrase what I said there and add a few other things as well and that is firstly congratulations I think it's wonderful that you are coming to a deeper understanding of who you are as a human being, who you are as a person in this world, and the people that you would like to surround yourself with who share similar values and who can challenge you and who can excite you. And that's great. And the reason that that's great is not just because it will have a deep impact on your life, but because a lot of people don't actually think that critically about the relationships that they share with other people and the friendships that they have and they're happy to just kind of be surrounded by in a sort of a lukewarm soup of humans that do nothing to excite or challenge them or stress their senses now maybe that works well for them but clearly it doesn't work well for you and the fact that you're understanding that now and you are 
identifying the kind of life that you want to live is wonderful and it shows that you have a great sense of self-determination and an aspiration to really sucking as much out of this life as you can. The second thing is that part of understanding that and part of coming to that realisation is allowing things that do not serve you to fall away from your life. Uh, I don't know how old this little sister is because she didn't specify, but I'm going to assume that it's potentially in her early to mid-20s because she did say a uni friend, although that could be someone who she met at uni. Let's just say that she's in her 20s. For me, I feel like this was a time in which I was strengthening the bonds that I still have with important women in my life now, but also, you know, really leaning into that process of understanding who I wanted to be and understanding the life that I wanted to live. And I guess like shedding that skin, you know, if you think of, if you think of your twenties or if you think of that period in your life or that coming to that realization, the age probably is not relevant, but coming to that realization, what you are doing is you're, you're going through a process of transformation and transformation is necessarily sticky and difficult and gooey and uncomfortable and a bit ugly sometimes. Um, but once you emerge from that process of transformation, you, you know, to stretch the analogy a little bit further, you are a beautiful butterfly, but also <laughs> you're different. You've been changed and you have a different way of seeing the world and you have a different desire for what you want from the world for whatever reason you have to understand that this is a, it's not just a process, but it's also a practice. So you have to practice the cis heterocentric world that we live in tells us that we need to find one person who will, who will, we will live with for the rest of our life. And, you know, the sort of like hyper monogamy as well. One person who will be our soulmate, who will be our best friend forever. Look, to be honest, I know a lot of women who are in relationships with men who do consider them to be very close to them or do consider them in some ways to be one of their best friends, but it's it's rare. Actually, what women need is a cohort of strong, amazing people like them who share their values, who understand the world that they live in in the same way, and they need them to be their soulmates for the rest of their life. We know that finding those people, if we want to you know, fall in love with them in a romantic sense is not always easy. So it, it stands to reason that it will be a process to find those people who feed your soul in platonic ways too. I say follow Sophie's advice, join online communities, uh, reach out, nourish and nurture the gentle, fragile bonds of connection when they first form mm-hmm. and grow them you know, feed them, water them, take care of them, tend to them. And in a few years' time, I think you'll look back on this and go, this is the work that I put in and it's paying off now. I have a beautiful, rich garden. Beautiful. I, I love that, um, the, the idea of the um, butterfly, emerging as a beautiful butterfly, and to keep your eyes on that prize. Um, it reminded me, Rebecca, Rebecca Solnit, one of my favourite authors, she wrote this essay about... Um, change being a violent process that metamorphosis is as you say like in that cocoon in the chrysalis that it is sticky and um ugly and yet we do emerge as something different and and to hold on through that and to continue to cultivate um 
and yeah, keep watering those plants. Curious writes, I'm 15 years old and have been masturbating for about a year now. I really want to start a conversation with a couple of my friends, but I'm not sure how to bring it up without sounding weird. Have you got any ideas? Thanks. Sophie Hardcastle. I am so happy to hear this question read out. Me too. I love this so much. Immediately I was thinking about when I was 15 um, and how I couldn't get any schoolwork done or like focus on any assignments because I was just masturbating constantly and and just how much I would have loved to have spoken to my girlfriends about this. Um, I grew up surfing uh, quite competitively and so was most of the time was hanging out with young boys and it infuriated me that they got to speak about this and that they got to, I don't know, share content with each other and that they got to have these really open conversations about masturbation and I don't know have that validated and and that be a legit thing for them and it and I was just like yeah couldn't concentrate on anything because I was masturbating all the time and I think for this little sister if she can um you know embody this confidence and and go into this conversation with her friends, as I eventually ended up doing much later than her, if she goes in unapologetically honest about, you know, this is what I'm doing and this is great, I think her friends will respond to that confidence and that they will open up space. And, you know, if she if she sells it in a way that, you know, this is normal and this is great as it is. Um, I mean, I think masturbation is so brilliant in that you learn exactly what you like um you you learn your body and you know your body before anyone else gets anywhere near it um and it's it's brilliant and I think if she can you know open up that conversation with her friends and be unapologetically honest and just you know, have have that confidence of this is great and and I love this and I love myself. Um, then I then I could only imagine her friends responding warmly to that. And this is something that we really need to unpack broadly as a like it shouldn't be up to this fifteen year old to quietly bring the conversation up with her girlfriends. It should be something that is just accepted that, you know, anyone who's not a cis boy experiencing and, and enjoying and pleasuring their body is not just normal, but it's fucking great. It's mm. fucking great. You know what I think we definitely need to do if we want, you know, people, conservatives always love to talk about protecting girls and, and giving girls the tools to, you know, quote unquote, avoid things happening to them. Of course, they never like to talk about what we can do to, to make boys and men stop doing those things to us. But one of the tools that if you want to go down that path, one of the tools that we need to give young girls is to say, pleasure yourself, figure out what your body wants, figure out how to be in control of your body. And at the very least, it won't avoid terrible things being done to you, but it will give some sense of control over your body and some knowledge that what is being done to you is wrong because it's not meant to feel this way. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. 
and I mean whether whoever you're entering a relationship you know at any time with being able to prioritize your feelings and your pleasure is yeah it's fantastic um and so great (laughs) I would suggest to this uh little sister to maybe just raise a conversation about sex in general with her girlfriends and if you're feeling nervous about it which I understand um raising the conversation in general talk about um talk about sex scenes that you've seen in movies or in TV shows and whether or not you think it's realistically depicted. Uh, Talk about consent, talk about pleasure and maybe recommend shows as well. Like there's a really great show called Pen 15. It's two adult women who the show is set in the nineties and they're playing their 13 year old selves. So they're, because they're adults, they're able to explore a range of topics that would feel potentially weird and uncomfortable to have 13-year-olds depicting on screen. And one of the episodes is purely about one of them discovering masturbation and how she, like you, Sophie, just stays in her room and humps her pillow all day long. So I think that, you know, again, like invoking that idea of starting conversations through fictional narratives, recommend it to your girlfriends and say, what did you think of that episode? And see what happens, you know, because like I said, some of them may respond in ways that uh, indicate their own embarrassment, but they're actually as curious as you are and they're probably doing it. Or even just, you know, get a book and circulate it amongst yourselves or, um, you know, read a magazine together. All the traditional things that we used to do to discover, you know, to sort of discover adjacent sex facts I think can be helpful here. And in the, if, in the worst case scenario, if you do kind of get some backlash for it or if they do tease you for it or whatever, firstly, I just want to reassure you, you're not weird um, at all. But just as best as you can, try and rise above it and say, well, it's fine. It's fine that you think I'm weird, but it feels pretty good and I reckon you should try it out. <laughs> it feels fantastic. I also want to say that it's really nice to end on this question because we've talked a lot today about the terrible harm that is done to girls and women and the trauma that is inflicted against girls and women, often in a world that doesn't really care to look at those things. But to talk about sexual pleasure and to talk about those same girls and women having control over their bodies and having control over making their bodies feel good, I think is a really powerful note to end on. Beautiful. I love that. And if nothing else, just keep mazzing. You've been listening to The Big Sister Hotline, a weekly advice podcast that delivers no-nonsense words with love from the kind of people you know have your back, your big sisters. You can find us everywhere you get your good podcast content and please, if you do enjoy it, please consider rating it and reviewing it because it helps to show the podcast to other people and I'd like to amass an army of little sisters. 
If you enjoy the hotline, you can support the ongoing making of it at my Patreon, which is www.patreon.com forward slash Clementine Ford, where pledges of more than $10 per month receive access to a bonus monthly episode of the hotline, only available for download to subscribers. If you have a question you'd like answered, you can submit it to bigsisterhotline at gmail.com. And don't worry, all submissions are treated as totally anonymous. We're big sisters and we've got your back. And while you're in the market for good podcasts, remember you can download Adore Beauty's Beauty IQ Uncensored podcast. It's weekly, it's funny, and it'll tell you everything you didn't know you needed to know about the beauty stuff they don't tell you in the magazines. Mainly because hosts Joanna and Hannah are as real as shit and understand that other women are too. Download it where you get your podcasts. My guest this week has been Sophie Hardcastle, author, poet, artist, Immense, incredible human being, wonderful friend. Sophie, what's on next? I am working on a pitch document to turn Below Deck into a series. Um, I'm also working on a, um, a show that, that I made with my best friend Charlie uh, a year and a half ago about a pansexual couple in an open relationship. Um, called Cloudy River, and we're now turning what was our pilot into a much bigger series as well. So it's all happening for me in screenwriting at the moment. That's amazing. And I just personally want to say as well how inspirational it is to see someone who has been open about the experiences that you've had turn them into incredible art. It's not fair and it shouldn't have to be that way, but I'm very grateful for you and glad that you exist in the world. Thank you. I'm so, so happy that you exist in the world. Thank you. Remember, there's no topic too thorny and no question too weird for the Big Sister Hotline. We're here for all the questions you don't want to ask your therapist, especially now that it has to be over Zoom. So contact us instead. The Big Sister Hotline. The phone lines are open. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.